Welcome to the Fred Opie Show, where you learn how to make a difference on and off the field. I'm your host, Fred Opie, an athlete turned author, producer, professor, and editor. I use my story and the stories of others to help you figure out what your gifts are, find the right places and activities to develop them, and give you a plan to give, save, and spend your money and time wisely. This week's show is an excerpt from a talk I delivered at the McDonough School in Baltimore, Maryland. I was invited to come and speak to the school's FCA group, a history class, and to address the boys and girls varsity lacrosse teams, as well as speak to the school's Sankofa Club. Here at Babson College, we have a similar club that we call the Black Student Union, or BSU. Many colleges have similar organizations. It's an organization that supports the concerns of the school's African-American students, but is not restricted to those students alone. A McDonough administrator asked me to address two questions when I came to talk to the Sankofa group. What's it like to be the first and one of the few African-Americans from my experience? I talked about attending a predominantly white school as a youngster in the Hudson Valley, Croton on the Hudson to be exact, and the relationship between me and teammates during my time as a Syracuse University lacrosse player, as well as an interesting experience that I had traveling as a member of the U.S. national team to Perth, Australia for the World Championships in 1990. It is definitely an interesting anecdote, to say the least. And I talk about attending an American Historical Association National Convention as a professor of history. The question related to my job as a professor in history of foodways, why have African Americans struggled with food-related illnesses? That's certainly been the case in my own family and the impetus for some of the research I do today. Why so much diabetes, high blood pressure, hypertension? This podcast, in my opinion, is like being in an African-American barbershop. You get to learn what the black experience is from my childhood until my adulthood. For those of you listening, most of you remember the lacrosse tribe, and I'm one of you. I had this discussion, me, an African-American, sitting across from two white coaches who wanted to know. And I just started sharing from my experiences. And man, those guys' eyes widened. I had more credibility because they knew me. They knew my history. They knew that wasn't going to sit there and make fiction up. I was just telling some of the experiences I've had. I'm just talking about what it's like to be black here in the United States. Now, let me preface this for some of you who are about to click me off. I'm not interested in living in any other country in the world. I love this country and I love it so much I want to see it get better. You can see somebody on TV complaining about this and this and that, but then if you know somebody's been through it, it's another thing. So in many ways, listening to this show today will give you some of the inside, some of the barbershop talk that happens among African Americans. So keep in mind, I'm talking to a room full of high school African American students in the city of Baltimore. And this is not that long after the riot that happened at Baltimore. So the context of this talk is very meaningful for some of these people who have had family members involved in these riots or actually seeing these riots up close and personal. I share some of the lessons and strategies I have used to thrive in what I call uncomfortable situations that have happened in my life. And I provide tips that are helpful for those of you parents, coaches, teachers, and school administrators. There's something in here for you. When I talk to other African-Americans, <laughs> it's like we sit there and share battle stories when we talk about the experience of growing up here in the United States. That's today's show. It's African-American History Month, and I thought this show would 
be appropriate because it contains both lacrosse stories, school stories, and my own oral history. If you've been listening to this show for any time, you know that I'm all about unpacking the lacrosse stories and oral histories of my guests. So I have an opportunity to share my own history. Finally, my live event calendar for 2019 is filling up fast. I'm starting to get a lot of requests to come and speak. If you are interested, email me today to schedule a live event near you at fdopie at gmail.com. And now, enjoy this week's show. So I grew up in Westchester County, the Hudson Valley, about maybe 40 minutes from, from Manhattan. Real pretty area. I started playing the sport of lacrosse in eighth grade. So my parents moved our family from the town of Osney, New York. That's where Sing Sing Prison is. My father retired as a Sing Sing prison guard. I'm the youngest of three boys. Me, Frederick Douglass Opie. There's my brother who's 16 months, 16 months older. Marshall Noel Opie, born on Christmas, named after Thoroughgood Marshall. There's my oldest brother, Randy, named after A. Philip Randolph. All three of those names are very significant in history. And if you don't know those names, you should write that down and Google or read afterwards and find out why did these parents name these three boys, three black boys after these three people. So that's the context of my mother grew up in the town of Osning and felt as though her boys would have greater opportunities if she moved from the town of Osning, which is probably about 10%, between 10 and 8% African-American, to Croton, which was probably less than 5% African-American. So it was, to say the least, a culture shock, probably more so for my parents and for my oldest brother, who was in middle school, than for me, because I started school in Croton. So I, you know, I didn't really know much difference. But we moved there, and I was not aware of the difference until we got to middle school. Then it was really tough. I started noticing differences. My mom has passed, my, my father's passed. My mother's mantra was, don't come home with no blue-eyed Susie's. You giggling like your mama must have said that. My mom always kind of put it as like, if she's not brown, she better not be hanging around. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Many years later, where an older white woman had to explain to me what my mother was saying, because I just thought straight up, my mother's a racist, and that's why she's like that. That's, that's just what I thought. This older woman was, who was close to my mother's age was saying, don't you understand she was trying to protect you? Because if you were walking the streets in the wrong place, or somebody didn't like the idea that you was a brown boy or with a pink girl, there could be a problem. It could be a serious problem. My mother grew up in a time where it was not safe for her male cousins to even consider that. That wasn't an option. So let's go from there to high school. Some of this is my perceptions and some of the realities. And reality and perception are two different things. The perception was I would come to school on Monday and hear about some great party that my white classmates were having that I wasn't invited to. And it's around the same time, again, where people are now dating, they're playing all kinds of games where you're, you're kissing and touching around these games, and all of a sudden, I'm not in the mix anymore. And it seemed really strange to me, and it started making me really feel insecure and marginalized. The beginning of a lot of animosity felt towards those people. My fix for me was sports. I excelled in the sport of lacrosse. I excelled in soccer. 
I also play ice hockey. Again, people say ice hockey, brother play ice hockey. If you move a person to a community where these are sports that are what you play, that's what you do. That's just the reality of it. White kids who grew up around black kids, they, they do the same thing. That's just what happened with me. I got to the point where lacrosse was the most important sport for me. I had the opportunity to go off and play in college. When I went to college, I went to a community college because my grades were terrible. Not because I wasn't smart, but because I had ADHD at a severe level and I didn't have the grit to know how to push through that. I also didn't have the kind of support system that I have now as a person with a documented disability. I have a lot more supports around me on my job that helps me get through those tough times. I didn't have that then. So I bombed in school, had to go to this community college, went there seeking lacrosse. I wasn't seeking education. This would be straight with you. I was seeking to continue to scratch that itch of lacrosse. I went there, I qualified to get scholarship offers at University of Maryland, a place called Delphi University of Long Island, and then ultimately Syracuse. Syracuse won their first national championship that year. So I pursued that because, again, I'm chasing lacrosse. So I go to Syracuse, and now I'm on the defending national championship team, played in two national championships during my time at Syracuse, national TV a whole bit. Then I go back home, and now everybody's embracing me. Now everybody's inviting me to the party. Now, you know, everybody wants Fred around that now there's some kind of cachet attached to me. I went to one of those phases that you probably will go through if you're not going through what I call the angry black man stage, where I just was really mad how I thought I was being treated by society, my community, things that people would say that they had no idea was just really insensitive. I'll give you an example. One of my teammates comes from a lily white town, even more isolated than the town I grew up as far as the exposure to black folks. And he says to me, you don't think black women are pretty, do you? He didn't even understand why that would be a problematic statement. At the time, I really didn't know how to answer him. I just, I don't even know what I said. Kind of just like, you know, really? I'll, I'll jump to 1990. I'm a member of the U.S. national team, the first African-American to play on the U.S. national team. The world championships are in Perth, Australia. We are all in U.S. national team guard. Everything the same. We get off the plane. We go through customs. I go through customs, and then I get on the bus. And all of the teammates and the members of that entourage are on the bus. And they say, hey, oh, what happened? What take you so long? Why did it take you so long? So I had to go through customs. I start asking questions. What I found out, I'm the only one when going through customs did they search everything in my bag? Opened my bag up, broke everything down. The white teammate, I'm the only person that looks like me in that entourage. And that's what customs did to me going to Australia. White teammates had no idea why that happened. I had to explain to them what my theory was why that happened. Let's jump to academia. I'm now getting a PhD. Things have changed in my life. I understand better who I am. I understand grit. I get through it. I'm, I'm in graduate school. I'm at a conference as a, now as a professor. My first job's at Morehouse College in Atlanta. I'm at Morehouse at a conference, at a hotel. And we go to a panel at the conference. After the panel's over, we're sitting around talking. One of my white colleagues comes up to me. I'm dressed probably very similar to what I'm dressed now. Comes and says, can you get me some more water, please? A lot of my white colleagues, I have to explain to them why the person's asking me that. The assumption is that I'm working at the hotel not that I'm your colleague and your equal in the situation. Please email me at fdopie at gmail.com and share your questions. I will repeat them on the show so people get the benefit of your question and my response.
and you can purchase a copy of my autobiography slash career advice start with your gift on amazon.com the book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook we are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read be a difference maker right now use your smartphone or computer and purchase two or more paperback copies of start with your gift give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show, unpacking history to positively impact the future. My work is around the area of food. I use food as a lens into history. What do you learn when you look at the study of food? You learn a lot about power. You learn a lot about uh, sexism. You learn a lot about business and how business is done. You learn a lot about stereotypes. You can easily find out more about my work by just going on fredopi.com. I have a podcast, there's a sports podcast, and then I have a food history podcast. There's a ton of stuff on there, and there's two blogs where you can learn more. The last thing that you asked me to talk about is why have there been so many health-related, food-related problems in the black community? Number one is that we come from a culture historically in which we were doing agricultural labor. Now, I don't need to go into slavery. I can stop right at 1865 and look at the period from 1865 up until the, to the end of the Great Migration, which is roughly the 1970s. The majority of people of African descent have lived in the South. They live in agricultural labor regions. And so they were used to doing work that was very rigorous and burned a lot of calories. And so they ate a very uh, fat-laden diet. But when you're doing that kind of work, it's not a big deal. Now, you get to the Great Migration where you leave and you come to places like urban Baltimore or New York or Pittsburgh or Chicago, and you come from a culinary tradition where you're eating these, these big meals, but now you're not doing that kind of work. So you can imagine what's going to happen when you're eating that, those, those amount of calories but not burning those amount of calories. That's a problem. That's one thing. We also went from a situation where we have people eating a Sunday-like meal every single day, and it's available at a less expensive cost at fast food places. As one of the people I interviewed talked about, her family had a history of obesity. It's a really interesting podcast, and she said that the problem is we have people spending too much time in the eat-and-gobble lane, the fast food lane. And if you eat like that and don't have a regular exercise routine, it's going to lead to problems. Secondly, we're talking about a group of people, us, who are in a very stressful social economic environment in which it is very stressful just being a black person in America. Okay, that's just the reality of it. Now, the question is, what are you going to do with that stress? How are you going to cope with that stress? You can choose to cope with that stress by a regular habit of exercise and eating well. You could deal with that, with that stress with making sure that you're doing things with theater, uh, being involved in a, in a good, healthy community with other people, good or healthy relationships. You can deal with, with therapy when you need therapy, or you can self-medicate with food. And there's too many of us who are self-medicating with food. Those are part of the dynamics. But what African Americans, the challenges that we are having with food, representative of a larger issue within the United States population with food. My first book called Hog and Homedy, the last chapter in that book is called Food Rebels. And the whole chapter is about the very topic that we're talking about. So if you want to know more about that, it's unpacked in that particular chapter. There's a podcast 
in which I interview a woman and she talks about the, the history of obesity in her family. She does a great job of explaining this and she works in that field. Let's go to questions. So you talked a little bit about like the angry black man mantra. How do you keep that from consuming like your entire life? That is a great question. She said you talked about the angry black man period in your life and how do you keep that from consuming you? Number one, to understand it is a stage. It is a stage that is there for a reason because there are a lot of inequities and inequalities that you're going to face in this country. Being in good relationships with people is really helpful to be able to talk about it. If you don't talk about things, they build up inside you and then you start the negative coping mechanisms. Reading is critically important. There's a number of books uh, that you can find at fredobi.com suggested reading, but you got to read a podcast that my wife recently just turned me on to, which is called Truth's Table. Excellent podcast that unpacks a lot of the issues that go on in our culture societies. Education, good relationships, talking about your issues, I think is the best way to keep that stuff from self-destructing because that is what's happening with a lot of us. How did he cope with that? My brother probably had the most difficult time. Alcoholism, a lot of problems. But you had to be mindful what it means to send your kid into an environment even like McDonough that's supportive. It is still, you're in enemy territory when it comes to your culture. Enemy territory. As much as I like McDonough and would probably send my kid to McDonough, the fact is, this is not friendly fire for your culture. So my parents put me in a new community for better education, but my parents did not understand the cultural problems that were going to happen with me. It was, I, I describe it as almost like cultural castration. So you've got to make sure your parents know what you're going through and discuss it with them. Get therapy, whatever you need. And if you are a parent and you decide to do this, you all are probably better prepared. I'm better prepared as a parent because I went through this. But I'm aware of what people are trying to do to my kids' minds, their identity, definition, what beauty and what beauty isn't acceptable body, not acceptable body. But you got to be aware of that. And my parents were not aware of that. And I think my brother suffered the most out of all of us. Middle brother Marshall, he made the decision to go to Howard University. So that helped a great deal. It's not the panacea for it all, but it helped a great deal. But for me, find out who I was spiritually in the eyes of Jesus Christ and find out who I was in the eyes of people like Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, you know, Dr. King and reading a ton of history, Franz Fanon, it made a huge difference. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to go into the field that I went into. Did you ever feel like you were the token player? So I make this U.S. national team. At Syracuse, I didn't make awards. I didn't make all across the street. I wasn't an All-American. So, but my career continued. I continued to get better as a player, which put me in a position to make the U.S. national team. Of course, I then heard people that said he made the team because he's black. People will say that kind of stuff. People will assume that I got the job that I have at Babson College, another school that I couldn't have got accepted in if I was a high school senior. I'm teaching that. People assume I'm there, but my record speaks for itself. As far as my publication, and there are people on campus, I'm sure, think that. But ask me if I care, because they ain't paying my bills. <laughs> for my kids, Hampton or Morehouse probably be good, because they've been in a lily white situation most of their life. It's all about fit. If it's a good fit for you, you need to go there. Also, can you afford? I wouldn't go to any school I can't pay for. I would not go to any school that I have to take out student loans. I'm just going to tell you straight that. My kids know that. I am 
preparing them to go to a state university wherever we live. If they want to go to private school, I will give them the state university money and they can pay the rest on their own because I'm not paying for it. So if you can afford to go to school like Morehouse, you know you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, those are Spelman, those are great places to prepare people for professional school. But can you afford it and is it the right fit? It was one of the best places as far as teaching. I miss teaching by Morehouse men. I miss it like crazy. Ultimately, we went back to New York so my wife could get her PhD at NYU. That's why we left. But if I could get a job back at Morehouse, I'd go back there in a hot second. As long as you pay me right, compensate me right, and there's a good situation for my family, I'd go back. But it's fit. Since you've been like, in a lot of white spaces, do you ever like, find yourself back up your blackness? I'm battle-tested now. I don't mean that to be arrogant, but I kind of know what's coming at me. People really can't come at me with stuff with something I go, oh man, I can't believe what they said that. No, not really. I create an infrastructure of friends and fellowship around me that protects me from that. Sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you got to retreat and get energized. That's true. But sometimes you got to retreat from nonsense that happened in your own community because there's mess everywhere. I know how to rejuvenate myself. And I think that is one thing that's really important. Oftentimes, we as black folks in white spaces, we overexpose ourselves. So that we're at the point where you ain't got nothing to give nobody. I make sure that I strengthen me. You know, I'm married, love my wife, but she knows there's certain things I'm going to do to keep me straight, keep me strong, so I can be a better husband. And the same thing when you're in this environment, you can't overexpose yourself. There are injuries that happen to players when they overexpose themselves. They're not resting themselves. You have to rest yourself intellectually, spiritually, and culturally, and make sure you're strong enough for the next battle that's going to come. And that's the problem a lot of people. You just, you out there, out there, it's like you're running the Boston Marathon, never stopping. You got to rest. You can't run the Boston Marathon every single day and expect you're going to be ready for the next race that comes up. It's, that's ridiculous. Do you think the cultural effect that the child has when choosing a school, how important do you feel that is? The cultural part? Yeah. I think it's real important. It is real important that we feel there's an infrastructure in place for her to be comfortable. Now, we took her to another school last year that she applied to, and as soon as my wife, I liked the school, but as soon as my wife got on the campus, she said, uh-oh, oh no. And that was it, we just, it wasn't, it wasn't a debate. My wife doesn't agree, I don't agree. We, we understand that principle of that agreement is God's plan to, to crown us with peace. As soon as she doesn't agree, we shut that down, we didn't apply. So that's real important to me. I am not going to put them in a hostile situation where I don't feel they're going to be supported. They have to be supported. And it's a whole lot more than admissions rolling out a bunch of black folks because they know we're going to be on campus. Colleges will do that stuff. So don't think, you know, when you leave here and you're applying to college, you better make sure there's a safe space for you as a black person. You need to go attend classes while classes are going on to find out how people are treated in those classes. You need to talk to students that you see on this campus offline, when admissions people are not around you outside the admissions tour and find out what they think. Talk to alums, see what they say. The same way if you would take that much time to investigate a car before you purchase it, you need to do the same thing with a prep school or a college and, and, and a job. Investigate, make sure it is a safe place for you by checking and being diligent. That's a great question that you just asked. When you were in middle school, when you said you started to um, see the racial differences, what did you tell yourself, and what advice did you give to yourself back then? There were times when I had severe depression. There were times when I wanted to take my life. This isn't good enough. When you feel those things going on, you got to get help. And make sure your parents know about this stuff. When I was that age, 
when I hit puberty, I thought my mother and father, particularly my father, because he's the male identity, I thought he was the stupidest person in the world. I won't tell him nothing. I got to be about 25, 26, and one day I came home on a visit, I was like, man, dad is smarter. Dad didn't change, I changed. Dad been smart the whole time. <laughs> and some of you think the same thing about your parents. I send my kids to my brother, Marshall, and he can talk sense to them in a way that I never could. Some of you may need to look at aunts, uncles. You gotta talk to people, particularly older folks, because we've been through this. It took a long time that I got to the point where I felt comfortable with who I am and confident who I am. Read, keep reading. Anytime Malcolm, you saw him, he had a briefcase full of books. And anytime he had a free minute, he was reading. That's what I do. How often do people catch you reading a book when you don't have to read? That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com.